This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. John Hickenlooper says America's shores have been breached, not by an invading army, but by an authoritarian mentality. It's a reference to the man he wants to replace in the White House. Hickenlooper is seeking the Democratic nomination for president, and he delivered his first major foreign policy speech this week. I reached the former governor on the phone, and welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Iran is top of mind now, with Congress getting briefed on escalating tensions. The U.S., of course, withdrew from the nuclear deal, saying Iran wasn't a trustworthy partner and that the deal failed to address Iran's support of terrorist groups. How would you handle Iran differently? Well, certainly one of the things I talked about in my speech on foreign affairs was that we have a new necessity for what I call constant engagement. And so many of the issues we face go beyond just one negotiation. So how we deal with Iran is important. And certainly I would look at making sure we do everything we can to make sure they don't get nuclear weapons. But not only that, we should be looking at how do we restrain their testing of ballistic missiles and how do we get them to stop funding terrorists and terrorist activities uh, in the Middle East. But part of what constant engagement says is that by focusing on all of our partners around the world, and even even countries that I would say we're more adversarial with, but by keeping engaged consistently with them, we could bring more pressure on places like Iran, and we could do a better job of addressing the global issues that really are global, like pandemics like Ebola, climate change, cybersecurity is a good one. It's important to look at on the small focus of, all right, here's what we're going to do around Iran. But on the larger scale, we've got to recognize that we need a network of constant engagement. Uh, would you have stayed in the nuclear deal? I wasn't, you know, wildly happy about it. There, obviously, we didn't get them to cut back on their funding of terrorist activities in the Middle East. And by any measure, Iran was still consistently threatening our closest allies in the Middle East, like Israel. So there are all kinds of problems with it. It's, it would have been a hard decision. There's no question about it. Where do you place authoritarianism today on the list of global threats? And uh, why, to quote you, has it breached our shores with a democratically elected president? Well, our rule by law, our freedom of the press, uh, having an independent press, having an independent judiciary, so much of those foundational aspects of American democracy are under assault by an authoritarian figure who is, you know, in the White House. If the people who voted him there like him, what's what's the issue? Well, uh, certainly he was voted there, and so he gets to stay there, at least until the next election. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is that what he's doing while he is there is very authoritarian in nature. And to begin a tariff war, I haven't found anyone. I can't hear. I haven't heard of one example where a tariff war benefits either side, and far too often it leads to some form of escalation and often military conflict. So he is almost immediately throws himself into a tariff war, which I think most people would say is you know a certain recklessness uh, and doesn't seem to accept that there's serious downsides when you begin these kinds of engagements. Right? They're really they're not military, but they are very uh, adversarial. You spoke. I, you know, I, I worry about I worry about the consequences. We have companies in Colorado, like Arrow Electronics, that are 
advanced manufacturing companies. They take all these components together, put them in different levels of completion, and that supply chain that they have spent tens of millions of dollars to assemble now has to be reevaluated and sometimes broken apart. You spoke Monday to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This was the big foreign policy speech, and the Trump administration pushed back afterwards, saying that the president's foreign policy record is unquestionably a strength, citing sanctions on Russia and the current tariffs. And and why don't we just dive into some of what I've heard from farmers, for instance, that while expressing concern about the tariffs, there's also an acknowledgement of a, of a need for a reset with China. Well, certainly Russia, China, they have been directly harming American interests. And China has been cheating on international agreements. China has been stealing intellectual property, either through corporate extortion or through outright thievery. That had to be addressed. But you don't address it through uh, a tariff war. So what avenue would you pursue instead? Well, through negotiation. The whole point of international relations is putting a team together and having, at least in my argument, constant engagement where you're building relationships, you're negotiating with people all the time. And, you know, right now, somebody told me last week that there are a thousand empty desks, a thousand unfilled positions in the Department of State. And when you take the State Department and people in Germany or France don't know who to call, and I say that, I went to the Munich Security Conference uh, a month and a half ago, and frequently heard from our NATO allies, they don't know who to call Washington anymore. They're, the people they had worked with in the past are no longer there, and they haven't been replaced. I bet I heard that half a dozen times. The incumbent in the 2020 presidential race uh, isn't the only person that you criticized on Monday. You also chastised fellow Democrats for wanting to withdraw from America's global leadership role. Were you referring to someone in particular? No, I was referring to a trend among a number of Democrats that indicate, I believe, because of some previous foreign interventions that didn't go well, let's call them blunders on the, on the part of America, first and foremost would be the invasion of Iraq, that a number of Democrats are turning away from international engagement and avoiding these treaties and other international agreements around trade just because they've I think that it's as if they got their fingers burned. You know, we're not going to solve the world's problems and certainly not solve America's problems without growth. And trade done properly is one of the most reliable forms of economic growth that we have. I'm not saying we don't need to negotiate trade agreements, but too many people now are kind of backing away from all of our trade agreements, from whether it's NAFTA or, or remember the TPP couldn't even Secretary Clinton backed away from TPP. When we back away from a, an international treaty, trade agreement that covers almost all of the Pacific bordering nations, it leaves the field open for China. And right now, China is making massive investments in South America, in Africa, in large parts of Asia. They're making loans for infrastructure in various ports. And if the loans don't get repaid, the Chinese end up owning that shipping port or that railroad station. And long-term, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, that will put American businesses and certainly the, the jobs of our children and grandchildren at risk. Governor, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. 
John Hickenlooper is one of 24 Democrats seeking the presidential nomination. Tomorrow, how his time as governor helped shape his view of foreign policy. The University of Colorado selected a controversial nominee to serve as its president, and the vote to approve him was along party lines. Sound familiar? You probably think I'm talking about Mark Kennedy. But all the same applied to Bruce Benson when he was picked more than 10 years ago. The former oil man joins us now to reflect on his tenure leading the four campuses and on what his successor will face. And Bruce Benson, welcome back to our program. Glad to be with you. Mark Kennedy was the sole nominee from the Board of Regents, but nonetheless went through a bruising interview with students, faculty, staff. There was concern about his past votes in Congress on LGBT issues and affirmative action. The final vote of the Regents was 5-4 with the Republican majority winning out. What were your thoughts as you watched? Well, some of the people, including Ken McConnell, went up and listened to them uh, grilling him at Boulder. And their comment was, it was a lot tougher on me because he was there for mine also. So there were two of our staff that went up and heard all of that. So, I mean, this is just part of the process. You just go on. And the problem with the grilling that they give you, it's not about how, how do you run this university. The issues they were talking to him about, I don't believe anybody's brought up to me since I've been here. You really should be talking about a $4.5 billion enterprise and how many, you know, 70-some thousand students and 34,000 employees. And how do you make this work? And four campuses, a very complex organization. You mentioned Ken McConnellog. This is uh, your head of communications, uh, who you say saw your vetting and saw the vetting years later of Mark Kennedy right. and thought yours was harder. Uh, that is, you think the questions that faculty and staff were asking were not the right ones? I think they're not the right ones. Nobody comes to my office and asks me about gay marriage. It just never happens. What they're interested in is how we're going to run this university. So that's what the faculty, staff, students all want to talk about. I never hear about these things. But when I was up up for it, they asked me a lot of questions. It didn't have much to do with it either. What advice do you have for Kennedy when it comes to running the behemoth that is CU? More than 67,000 students, a budget of over $4 billion. I'll say a much larger system than Kennedy's current University of North Dakota. What advice do you have? Well, I told him, first of all, it's a very complicated place. You've got a lot of learning ahead of you. We've got a very strong cat staff. I would urge you to keep the staff. That's the four chancellors and the seven vice presidents and a few others that are critical because they know what's going on here and they can guide and help you so that you'll be successful. And if you do make a mistake, they're going to know how to dig you out of that hole and help you. The continuity, you think, is important. Is it, well, it's not just continuity. It's knowledge. It's who's got the knowledge. I mean, you've got a chief of staff that I think had five five presidents he's been chief for. If you take Ken McConnell over here, he's worked for two presidents and elsewhere. So if you look at all of this staff and these chancellors, you better pay attention to them because they know what they're doing. And so that's what I urge them to do. He also said, I would like to ask every any one of those that want to leave early to give me a year's notice. So that he understood understood what I had to say to him. What do you think is the biggest challenge uh, or the first challenge, frankly, that Kennedy should take on? Well, I don't know the first challenge, but the biggest challenge we always have is funding. I mean, Colorado ranks 47th out of the 50 states as far as funding for higher education. 
We continually get budget cuts all this year. We've got a 13% increase, which is good. But when I started here, we were getting $227 million from the state to run the place. We dropped down to about $145 million and have now built our waste back up to 245 I believe, about that. So we're making it moving it the right direction, but we're so far underfunded compared to other places. And when Mitch Daniels in Purdue said, I'm going to freeze my tuition, I thought, well, if I was getting the amount of state support that you're getting, I'd probably cut my tuition in half. So <laughs> we are way behind the power curve on this. And so we have to continue to work and find ways to make it work. And that's what we did during the big downturn in 08, 09, that we had to really cut things back. And we did that. We cleaned the place out. We got rid of a lot of stuff we probably shouldn't have. So we got a good balance in here. And uh, But we've already done that. So this is uh, sort of where we are now, but who knows what's going to happen in the future. You know, a lot of people have made hay of the president's compensation package. And they look at that and they say, well, that's just not a sign of a university system that seems to be struggling for money. What do you say? Well, what I wanted to get paid was a dollar a year, but they wouldn't do it. So they paid me three hundred and some thousand dollars a year. So it's not exactly overpaid. Uh, the mistake on that is I really should have insisted on that because that caused wage compression and people that are very, very competent have been held back. Uh, so I I think it's a very complicated and big job. There are presidents who are making two and three million dollars a year. And it's a huge job. I don't think people understand the complexities of the job here in the state of Colorado. We'll look back at a few things that occurred during your tenure with CU. But what would you say your legacy will be, Bruce Benson? Well, it's kind of funny, but it's a cultural change. And the culture is really, really important. I've had a lot of these discussions with other leaders, uh, not in education, but elsewhere. Culture's critical. And you need to get a culture where people respect each other, where they collaborate together, they work together on everything that you can imagine. Was that not true before your arrival or not true enough? It's not true enough. No, never was. And I mean, we we had a, a meeting early on when I started with vice presidents, chancellors. And I said, well, we got a little extra time. What are you guys all working on? Oh, you're doing that? Well, I am too. Well, why don't we collaborate? Why don't we work together? We had a 10-year case where they were going to refuse the tenure to this woman. And I'm not a big tenure person, but it's part of the system. So you have to support tenure. So we found out the problem was is that the people in the department didn't think she should get tenure because she wanted to do interdisciplinary studies. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear people doing those kinds of things. So I encourage that in collaboration across the whole camp, all our campuses on the campus and the other with the other campuses. So I think we have that going pretty well right now. Is it perfect? No, never. nothing's ever perfect. But we are in the process of making that happen. I also believe in political diversity. If you want to go back about 100 years ago, the conservative-liberal mix was one-to-one in the 50s. It got up about five liberal-to-one conservative, and now it's even higher. Uh, this is we need to teach kids how to think and not what to think. So let them hear all points of view, free speech, the whole thing. So that's how I believe. And that's what I think is an important cultural change at the University of Colorado. And when you bring in these controversial speakers, which I'm not bringing in, but the students bring them in. We we had uh, this one guy that uh, everybody knows about. We we gave out three tickets at his event, two to older people we don't know, one to a graduate student. At Berkeley, they had mass riots. Had another one. 
Nobody did a thing when we had this other guy at Middlebury that put people in the hospital. So we're teaching respect and how you work with people and collaborate and get people to work together. I'll note that in 2013, CU Boulder, regarded as one of the most liberal universities in the country, began a conservative thought and policy program. Yeah, that's what I pushed. Yeah. But it sounds like you think there's a, a lot more room for growth in a conservative presence on campus. Yeah, and it's I... not just conservatives. It's all presence. But to hear all points of view is what I really stress because you, you don't need to be working in a vacuum. And as I said, teach people how to think and not what to think. That's what education's about. So we're going to continue to expand that program. We're expanding it more right now. And we'll be hiring a full-time tenured faculty member to run the program uh, this in, in the next few months. Okay, Bruce Benson, uh, outgoing president of CU, I want to play a little game of lightning round with you. So I'm going to name something that took place during your tenure at CU. Uh, why don't you give me a few top-of-mind thoughts? Uh, the A train to DIA, uh, CU paid $5 million for the naming rights. How, how, was that a good decision? Yes. Uh, we're, we're not, you know, they, they wrote an article in the paper and it said, you know, it doesn't even hook your campuses together. Well, you know what? My campuses, employees, students, staff, everybody, they know what we are. We're trying to attract the other people and let them know what's going on. So you have out-of-towners, out-of-United States people coming in. Let them get on that train and hear what we're all about. It's a very important piece of our marketing program. Is it that not enough people know about CU? Well, if you're from, uh... New York or Europe, and you come to Colorado, you may not know much about CU. So I think it's important that people do know it. And I think it was money very well spent. We have people say you should have reduced tuition. I did the math years ago on this thing. It's like, you know, a few cents per, per hour, credit hour if you reduce tuition. No, this is a very well spent money. Okay. Joining the PAC-12 conference. What do you want to know? What are your thoughts about it? I think it's the best thing we've done. If you tell me why. At, huh? Yeah, tell me why. Well, it's, it's real simple. I mean, let's start with this. Our alumni base in the old Big 12 without Colorado uh, was about 11,000. In the Pac-12, it's 50-some uh, thousand, as I recall. I don't have the numbers right here. The uh, That's a big deal, having the alumni base. Then you start looking at recruiting. Where do we recruit a lot of non-resident students? California and places like that. Uh, another thing that most people wouldn't even think about, who are our research partners? And there's, there are places like Berkeley and Stanford and uh, UCLA, uh, Wisconsin, or excuse me, Washington. These are our research partners that we do a lot of work with. So that's what you should be working together with all the time. And then on top of it, if you want to take people to events uh, at other campuses, do you want to take them to uh, some of these smaller schools or states? excuse me, cities uh, in the mid-continent? Or do you want to go to, you know, UCLA or uh, L.A.? Or... Bruce Benson, thanks for being with us. For more than a decade, he has led the University of Colorado, the longest-serving president in 65 years. His successor, Mark Kennedy, starts in June. And while we're on the subject of higher ed, it's graduation season. And we've been dipping into commencement speeches around the state. At Colorado College last weekend, students heard from a superstar, billionaire television host Oprah Winfrey. Your life isn't some big break like everybody thinks it is. They're waiting on the big break. It's actually about taking one significant life-transforming step at a time. But those steps can be scary. 
So Winfrey then offered this. You're going to hear her mention the block system at CC, where students take one course at a time. I know that there is a lot of anxiety, a lot about what the future holds and how much money you're going to make. But your anxiety does not contribute one iota to your progress, I'm here to tell you. It does the opposite. Look at how many times you worried and you were upset and you didn't think you were going to make it through the block. I got that text a couple months ago. And here you are today. You made it. And I'm here to tell you that you're going to be more than okay. So take a deep breath with me right now. And repeat this. Everything is always working out for me. I want to hear it. Everything is always working out for me. That's my mantra. Make it yours. Everything is always working out for me. And finally, she told the CC students about her early struggles as a local newscaster and what she learned about success and failure. It wasn't working out for me on the news because I was too emotional. I'd go to cover stories and cry because people lost their houses or lost their children. I was told that I was going to be taken off the evening news and put on a talk show. That was a demotion for me at the time that actually worked out for me. So I would like to say that many times, many times there are things that look like failure in your life. And I want to clear up because for years at every graduation, I've said there's no such thing as failure. It's just life pointing you into a different direction. It does. It indeed does. But in the moment when you fail, it really feels bad and it's embarrassing and it's bad. (laughs) And it's going to happen to you if you keep living. But I guarantee you, it also will pass. And you will be fine. Why? Because everything is always working out for you. With Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. This is prime time for real estate. The weather's getting warmer, the days are longer, kids are getting out of school. But things have changed in the housing market. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus found it's finally slowing down after years of frenzy. Philip Wong needed a bigger house for a growing family. A wife, a kid, and a dog, and we started uh, getting a little cramped. His home in Arvada had square footage, but it was poorly laid out. He and his wife quickly found just the right home in Westminster, and they pulled off a feat that in the past would have been almost impossible. He sold his home and bought another at the same time. We thought, you know, this this could fall through because of X, Y, and Z on on either side. So there is that level of stress. um, But, you know, luckily, knock on wood, it's it's working out. In previous years, houses were easy to sell, but hard to buy. 
making this kind of timing tricky. Now these transactions are easier, and it comes down to simple supply and demand. There are almost 2,000 more homes on the market this spring compared to last year, not to mention all the new home construction. Wong's real estate agent Aaron Brumlevy says the additional supply gives buyers more options, and it's stabilized prices. So, you know, we're looking right now at a more normal, sustainable appreciation rate of about 2 to 5%. Per year, down from 10 plus percent. But still, demand is falling in Denver and across the country. Ralph McLaughlin is with CoreLogic, a real estate research firm. You know, we think a lot of what's happening is that we're just hitting an affordability ceiling. You know, um, prices can only rise uh, so much before it's hard for your average household to um, afford a home. Denver is the most expensive non-coastal market in the country, and wages have not kept up. Justin Knoll, a longtime real estate agent in Metro Denver, says there isn't much to choose from under four hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it is brutal out there under four hundred, and the stuff that you're finding at four hundred needs a lot of work. And that entry level market, people can't afford to put in a lot of work to it. So he says many of those buyers are stuck on the sidelines. For buyers who can't afford more expensive properties, there are options. And Knoll says that wasn't the case in previous years. You had to make a decision on the hood of the car right now. If you're going to sign this contract or make an offer on a property, you had to decide right then because five other people at least were doing the same. Now it's like, let me think about this overnight. Let me talk to my lender again. Let me talk to my financial planner. He says that's great for buyers who can afford the market, but he says it's been a tough transition for sellers. We do see sellers start to panic a little bit after a couple weeks on the market if they don't have it done. If they don't have a contract, they start to flip out. Sellers sometimes act like they're in Denver's old market, thinking they can get top dollar in bidding wars. But he says it is true that sellers still often have the upper hand in Denver, especially with properties in the right neighborhood. And that brings us back to Philip Wong, who's in the process of simultaneously selling and buying a home. It's a complex transaction in the best of circumstances, and especially so in a market that still moves quickly. So we didn't just up and one day decide we're going to, let's let's move to a bigger house. We, we, we planned this for probably a good three to five months in advance. His agent, Aaron Brumlevy with Keller Williams, says she told Wong and his wife that they needed to list their home when it was likely to sell in early spring and then be ready to buy quickly. And they listened to us and, and they were successful. So we appreciate that. It was super fun. So listen to your agent. Is that the message here? Uh, yes. <laughs> and agents are saying the transactions these days are much more fun and fair now that the market is more balanced. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Now a record breaker, Colorado's Jeff Garmeyer is now the fastest hiker of the 800-mile Arizona Trail. Garmeyer, Garmeyer, pardon me, whose trail name is Legend, finished it in just 15 days, 13 hours. He spoke with my colleague Stina Sieg, who once solo hiked a part of that trail herself. So uh, just for some perspective here, you did the entire Arizona Trail in less time than it took me to do just a quarter of it. <laughs> Uh, so can you describe like what a typical day would be like? Yeah. So each day I had a mile goal of 50 miles. And so the typical day at the beginning would start about 4 or 4.30 in the morning. And I'd try to choke down a granola bar and log some good cool miles while it was um, pre-dawn. And then the day would slowly warm up and get going. And I always thought of those miles before the sun rose as kind of bonus miles just because it was continual you know, just like the day hadn't even started yet. Wow. And so 
you know, for people who who can't visualize this, I mean, you self-supported. It means you didn't have a van, like, driving alongside. Not that they could anyway, because you're yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So how did you make that work? I mean, you're having to deal with water and food and, uh, you know, setting up camp. Yeah. So it was all cut into segments. So in my uh, most of the segments were about 100 miles. One was 150. And so at 50 miles a day, it came out to about two days or three days between resupplies. And what that kind of means is three of the locations where I resupplied, I mailed myself a box of the food I would take for the next section. And then three other ones, I bought things out of stores. So I knew there would be a grocery store there and I would go in and buy them. And sometimes these stores are a mile or two off the trail. And when you're doing it in the way I did, you have to walk that mile and a half, even though it's it's not part of the trail, but since you're self-supported, not using a car or any outside help, you have to carry yourself into town, use an hour to get there and back, and and then keep going. So it was all the logistics of um, if it was a 100-mile section, I'd have had this much food, 150, that much food. And then I had a good idea of the water situation and tried to limit how much I'd carry, but running out of water is the worst, so I usually overcarried on the water side. <laughs> And how did you deal with the water? Were you always carrying water? Did you sometimes filter as you went along? Did you cache some, like hide some along the trail? Yeah, I always carried it going along and I filtered most of the time. But yeah, there's two methods. Filtering takes a little while, especially with how dirty some of the cow ponds and things are. So sometimes I'd fill up my water and drink it through the filter and other times I would squeeze it through so I wouldn't have to worry about it. But yeah, water especially in the first half or so with so many cow ponds and questionable sources, filtering water was, it would just break the day up and not always a great way. Like you have a good rhythm, but you need to stop for 10 minutes and filter water. So it was a little, little tough to break it up, especially when I was feeling good. And you walked from the border of Mexico to the border of Utah. Yeah. And so when you're starting out, I mean, you're probably in this like really vast, dry remote desert. Yeah, that's like day three. It was going through Sagaro National Park and there's this 5,000 foot climb and it was dry and 90 degrees. And that was the main thing. It was just like, I drank way more water than I was expected. I ran out and it just happened to be a wet year down there. So there was a puddle I wasn't expecting and was able to scoop up some water and drink enough to like get by. But yeah, that those moments were kind of water insecure and it's going to be too long to the next source. They're a little bit scary. Did you ever get scared really about like that you could really get hurt or that you might not make it, like you could get in trouble out there like that? The one thing I was a little nervous about is I cut my feet up pretty bad on day seven. Like some, uh, I didn't take care of them. I was pushing really hard to make it to my next resupply point before it closed and I um, was pushing too hard. It rained a little bit. My feet got wet and then just kind of got really beat up. And they got some cuts on them. And I was really paranoid that that would get infected and ruin the, the whole trip. So it was more the first aid side I was most nervous about. Was that when you duct taped your feet? Yeah, I, I duct taped them, but then that wasn't good enough. So I walked into Pine, Arizona and bought super glue and super glued the entire bottom of my feet. Oh, my God. I mean... At that point, were you like, I'm definitely doing this? Or you're like, maybe it's time to sort of like let this one go and maybe not super glue my feet. Yeah, I think I was too deep and maybe a little sleep deprived and just thinking, 
well, duct tape's not working good enough. I've heard super glue can work on cuts and sometimes doctors use it. So it's like, let's just try it. So I flexed my foot and covered, slathered super glue on it and just was like, maybe this will help get me through a few days. And it worked better than duct tape. My feet still hurt, but it was, I think it, it changed where the pain was maybe. To the bottom of your feet? Yeah, Yeah, to spread it out over the whole bottom as opposed to just a couple specific areas. Oh my God. So what were the other like ailments you had? Over the course of this uh, of this journey, uh, sleep deprivation I think was number one. Just so I started out being able to log about fifty miles in seventeen or eighteen hours, and then as I got more tired and my body was falling apart more, still trying to hit that fifty mile mark, it was taking you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty one hours. So I'm sacrificing sleep to still hit that number and go for it. So by the second to last night. I was so tired. I was hallucinating and seeing things in the forest that weren't there. And it was a full moon. So just seeing moon shadows on things was really just strange to not have complete control of my mind. Do you think that all this pain was worth it? Yeah, I think there was, I think it's fun to focus on the pain and what you go through, but there there were really cool moments. Like I think one of my favorite moments in the outdoors was crossing the Grand Canyon under a nearly full moon because I could hike without my headlamp. And if I was doing a normal hike just during daylight, I'd never would have experienced that. And I think there's these unique little nuggets where it just is so much different than what you'd normally put yourself through that the pain is like the best stories after, but it's not kind of how I remember it the most, which is more just the really unique situations I put myself in and was able to come out the other side. So when you were crossing the Grand Canyon in that moonlight, what did it feel like in your body? Yeah, my body just felt like I was walking under like a magical sky that there's no light pollution, the moon's shining down, and I'm the only one out there. So it felt like I was alone in like this natural wonder that was just hard to explain, but it was just one of those things like you try to look it in and take mental snapshots. You have it forever, but it's one of those things like you got to, you got to see it to believe it kind of thing. Was that your favorite moment on the trail? Yeah, I think that was, that was definitely my favorite moment, especially because the day before that I'd had a rough time and I thought I was going to drop back and go a little slower and maybe not hit the, my goal for the whole thing. And then I just had a really great day through the Grand Canyon and everything. So on top of it being a magical place, my body did great that day. I was set up to be successful. So that day was the most important of the whole trip, I think. And even though the magic matters more than the pain, <laughs> what was your like the worst day, the most painful moment, the hardest moment on the trail? Yeah, that's a good question. Hmm. The worst moment was on day three, climbing up that 5,000-foot climb and running out of water and wondering if this is day three, how am I going to do this for at least 12 or 13 more days? Just because I felt so sore, broken, tired, disheartened. And I remember texting my dad like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. And it's day three. So that was a a bit of a wake-up call there. Luckily, there was no like lasting effects from getting a little dehydrated that day and had a couple good days after that, so kind of brought the morale around. 
But the whole trip in general was just the highs were so much higher than other trips I've done and the lows were so much lower that the swing was was pretty incredible to just go through. And it was constantly telling myself in the low moments that, you know, this low isn't going to last forever. No, so when I did the trail, did I did 200 miles of the trail. Uh-huh. And one of the things that really struck me walking from Utah to Flagstaff was how alone I was. You know, often I'd see more cows than people. And some days I wouldn't, I wouldn't see maybe anyone for three days. Yeah. I found that the solitude after a while really opened up this like well of sadness in me. How For you, how did you deal with the aloneness? Yeah, I think that's been a continual process since I started doing long distance hiking. And I just think I'm so comfortable alone that, which is strange to say out loud, but I've grown comfortable alone that the loneliness doesn't really strike. But then all of a sudden it will come up and I'll have to do something like in the next town, call my dad or something and and just have some human interaction. And on longer hikes, um, like in this last year, I was hiking for seven months. There were huge swings in like I didn't see someone for six days. And that was a huge thing. I just stayed in town for at least half a day, almost a full day, just having some human interaction because it's one of those things that when you lose touch with it and then you go back into it, it just feels so awkward that just wanted to like get back in the rhythm of talking again because I was only talking to myself. But I think overall the the well it opened up, especially on this trip, was just getting to know all the corners of my mind a lot more and what – like even in that when the complexity of life is there or is stripped away and then you're in this simplicity – I just could think about what I liked about that, what I didn't like about that, how that could translate to other things. There's, and then you just go down all these rabbit holes. Like, like I really like, uh, you know, being able to eat whatever I want, but I really hate treating water. Like you, you could let your mind go anywhere. And then, you know, you see like a beautiful view of the Grand Canyon that's uninterrupted by any civilized anything. And you just can think like, oh, this is probably exactly how like the cowboys would ride up and see this this Grand Canyon. It's it's almost like you're free to let your imagination go and there's just no no boundaries on where your mind gets to flow. And did it always feel good to you or were, did you ever get scared about what you found when you're you looking at all of the inner workings of your own mind? I don't know. I have gone and thought a lot about it while doing these hikes that – I'm so comfortable being alone. I've wondered if that should scare me or not, but that one's a continual self-analysis when I'm out there alone. So this this Arizona trail record, it's by no means your first, you know, giant feat. You've climbed all 58 uh, 14ers in Colorado. You have done a triple crown, which means hiking the Appalachian, the Pacific Crest and Continental Divide trails. You did that in the same year. What do you think it is inside you that pushes you to do these things? I think just when, so there's a lot of different things you can get fulfillment and like achieve goals, but I just love being out in nature and every day you can hit a goal every hour. I think just all these like micro goals that go into a big adventure and there's no better way to see, I guess, the country and how it's always used to be compared to now in big cities and stuff. So I've really enjoyed that aspect. 
And it's just a simple way to live where you care so much about food, water, and where you're going to sleep and not a whole lot more that I think that's pretty fun to strip away all the stuff that we take a lot more seriously than we probably should. Now, uh, I think most people don't know this, but, you know, there's this thing. People have trail names. Yeah. And you can't name yourself. Yeah. You know, uh, someone has to bestow a trail name on you. Yeah. And so your trail name is Legend. How did you get it? Yeah, I know. I don't I don't like it now because it sounds like I named myself. But I got it back when I was 20 years old on the Pacific Crest Trail. We were camped outside of Wrightwood, California. And we were in a group talking like, oh, why didn't we bring out food from town? It was like we were just there. That would be way better than eating ramen out here. So I volunteered or I said I would go back into town and come back out with some food. Went into town an hour later, showed up with pizza and steaks and everything for the whole group. So they said that was legendary and the name stuck. So nothing to do with really hiking, more to do with eating. Well, man, I mean, pizza. Yeah. yeah. Pizza after a hike is great and pizza during a hike is even better. <laughs> when you come off these trails or these you know giant experiences, like how is your re-entry into a normal society with you know, highways and big box stores and McDonald's. Yeah, it's it's not always smooth. It's it's pretty tough a lot of the time. I mean, going from this one where my sleep schedule was messed up and then hitting a big city, flying and, and every little thing where everyone's so much busier and in a hurry, whereas my whole day was all about, like, consistency. Now it's just, like, rush to do this, take a little bit, rush to do this. It's just a whole different mindset of when you're just know you're going to be hiking or moving the entire day when you're in the city. And it's a lot more just like event-based things where it's like, hurry up, don't be late. And then you can relax for a little bit. I don't know. It's There's just a lot of different things that kind of induce a little anxiety, especially in a big city. Now, until recently, you lived in Denver. You lived in Denver for four years. And now it looks like you're basically traveling around and having these adventures. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would be pretty jealous and yeah. would be like, man, how do you make it work? So how do you make it work to live as you live? Yeah, I worked um, for a few months in the winter. So had like a home base in Tahoe, but I don't have a car. I don't really pay rent. I just have a cell phone bill. So I've pretty much given up all the things that where money goes to live as simply and do this for periods between when I have to do short stints of work. And it's not going to be a sustainable thing forever, but in the moment, it's pretty fun way to stretch out not a ton of money and accomplish a lot of different things and just connect and do something that not a lot of people do, but a lot of people say they'd love to do. So I just took the the barriers that are mostly mental and just decided I was going to do it and went for it. Do you feel like your real life is out there on the trail or like in the city or sitting sitting right here talking to me? Well, I think the best version of me is out there in the wilderness, but I think there is a version where you can be part of the city and go out and do the weekend warrior type thing. But I don't think I could ever lose touch with the version of me that's in nature and whether it's backcountry skiing, hiking or whatever, just getting out there and being in touch with nature as opposed to a million other people. And what do you think you've learned about yourself on these trails? I've learned that, you know, 
physically you can kind of waver and go up and down. But mentally, if I want something bad enough, that there's really nothing that will stop me short of a physical ailment or something that I think I learned that my mind won't let me quit. It's got to be something else that triggers that. So now what? I mean, you've <laughs> you've done this great feat. Uh, what's the next thing that's really got a fire in your belly? Yeah, I'd like to do more of these uh, speed things and push myself and see where my mind continues to go and kind of see what the limit is for my body. Cause I feel like on this one, I was, I could like see the limit and I was buttoned up against it, but I never, I don't know. I think I could, I could cut it even closer. I just want to continue to push myself and, and to see, see what happens. So the next one, I think I'll try the long trail in Vermont, which is the oldest hiking trail in America. So that, that has some intrigue and my one experience on the Appalachian trail on the East coast wasn't great. So I'd love to go back to the East Coast and enjoy some more fun hiking. And when you when you finished the Arizona Trail, you know, you finished it, it I think it's at a campground that's kind of like in the middle yeah. of nowhere, like right on the border of Utah and Arizona. Was there like a bunch of folks there or was it just you alone? How, do, how were you feeling and who was there to greet you? Yeah, I was, so the whole last day I was expecting it to be pretty quiet because I knew I'd finish about eight or so at night. So it was going to be dark. And as I'm getting to the end, it's like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be emotional or anything. And then I get down about a quarter mile from the campground and hear all these people making sounds and stuff. And then I they see my headlamp. I get to the monument and not five seconds after touching it, someone's like, hey, are you legend? And it was like, well, moment's over, like not going to get my moment at the border. But there were uh, four other hikers who'd finished that day who apparently knew I was possibly going to finish and then a trail angel, which is someone who helps out hikers, that was going to give me a ride back to civilization. So it was a, uh, it was really great to finish. But I, I was kind of hoping I'd get a moment there, but it all worked out. My moment was for the fifteen days and thirteen hours leading up to that moment. Wow! And did someone hand you a beer? Yeah, I got I, I got to have a celebratory beer around a campfire. Couldn't ask for anything more. How did the beer taste? couldn't tell you. It tasted great, I'm sure, but it was just, I couldn't register anything. I was actually so tired. It was more like, this is great, but can I just get like 12 hours of uninterrupted sleep? <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jeff Garmeyer, trail name legend, speaking with CPR's Stina Sieg. Her trail name, by the way, is Starburst. Last month, Garmeyer broke the record for the fastest known hike of the 800-mile Arizona Trail, 15 days, 13 hours. He beat the old record by three days. So Stina will join me as we take Colorado Matters on the road to Grand Junction next month. We'll broadcast from our studio on Main Street with shows focused on the Western Slope. And on Friday night, June 21st, we'll tape an episode of the show a few blocks away at the Avalon Theater. My guest will be best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller. He has a new wilderness thriller called The River. Tickets are on sale now at CPR.org. The live event will also feature a performance from the winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest. He's Cousin Curtis of Placerville, Colorado. 
I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.